of the Lord be with you. With your spirit. Let us pray. This is, this is prayer 108 after public worship. Fitting. Grant, Almighty God, that the words we have heard this day with our ears may by your grace be grafted into our hearts, that they may bring forth in us the fruit of a righteous life to the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are going to talk about what we just did, the service that we do every Sunday here at Grace Anglican Church, which is the service of Holy Eucharist or Holy Communion. This is, this is the core rite of the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and whereas in the past, the morning prayer liturgy sometimes became the primary rite of Sunday mornings in the Anglican churches, the Holy Eucharist is firmly established in our current book as the service expected to mark each Sunday morning and every feast day in the church calendar. Uh, feast days, really quick. So, so uh, <laughs> there are many in here. Churches usually don't do all of those. You could, you could do a feast day pretty much every day. So um, uh, the, big, the big ones are that churches do, at least those that have their own facilities, uh, uh, tend to be the Christological feast days, the, the ones about uh, the life of Christ, uh, or uh, also ones that mark um, uh, important people like uh, Christ's family and uh, the apostles. But anyhow, so uh, every feast day, asterisk, I can pronounce it now. Um, <laughs> the Eucharist, uh, also called Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is, alongside baptism, one of two sacraments recognized in Anglicanism. A sacrament is ordained by Christ as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. That's how the 39 Articles of Religion defines it. The purpose is to encounter Jesus in the breaking of bread. It points us back to his last supper and his sacrifice on the cross and forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, uh, the Eucharistic liturgy is divided into two parts, a pattern we see even in the oldest church liturgies recorded. Uh, those two parts are word and sacrament, or word and table. The uh, 2019 Book of Common Prayer has two versions of this rite, as I've briefly mentioned previously. Uh, those are the Anglican Standard Text and the 
renewed ancient text, and we'll talk a little bit more about their differences later. Uh, the differences ultimately are minor and mainly concern the prayer of consecration. Um, we're going to spend most of our time on their shared features and will mostly, even with, within this whole thing, be focused on the Anglican Standard Text because that's what we default to here at Grace, though we'll make reference to the other. Uh, the rites in their structure follow more closely the sort of ecumenical structure that was adopted by the 1979 prayer book. Uh, though, it, though they retain more of the historic phrasing and theology of the English and Scottish prayer book traditions, especially the Anglican Standard Text. The structure of our liturgy is as follows. Okay, you can kind of see it here. Had to go a little bit small with the text. Um, so, uh, there's the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament. The liturgy of, of the word features the acclamation, call it for purity, summary of the law, or you can substitute the Decalogue. The Kyrie, you can substitute the Trisagnion. Uh, the Glorian Excelsis, the Collect of the Day, the Lessons, the Sermon, the Creed, the Prayers of the People, the Confession and the Absolution of Sin, the comfortable words and the peace. Everything sound familiar already? The liturgy of the table features the offertory, the sursum corda, the sanctus, the prayer of consecration, the Lord's prayer, the fraction, the prayer of humble access, the angus day, the ministration of communion, the post-communion prayer, the blessing and the dismissal. So we'll start stepping through those by, well, starting at the very beginning. A very good place to start as the old song goes. We start with the acclamation. Um, I did lose that page out. In which the priest or the bishop, if he happens to be here, welcomes the congregation with a, a versicle. That's just a call that requires a response. Uh, for most of the year, this is Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You would respond, Blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Uh, but uh, that is changed, uh, particularly for. Lent and Easter, where it's different. As you notice, it was different this morning and will remain different for the rest of Lent. Then it will change again for Easter, uh, and then we'll be back to normal. Uh, that's followed by the Collect for Purity. Now, what used to happen is the priest in his own quarters in the sacristy um, would uh, would say a prayer before he went out to say the Mass. Well, Cranmer said 
as with everything, we're all participating in this. And so this should be something that was said publicly, not privately. And so for that reason, uh, he translated this, tweaked the language as we've talked about before, and as um, I'm going blank on this name. Yeah. Zach, yes. Uh, <laughs> Zach Hicks, in, the, in his lectures at the fall retreat, um, uh, talk, talked about specifically. Uh, so, so go back to that to get a really great break, breakdown of how he adapted this, uh, this colic for, for purity and really emphasized the, the work of God and our inability to work in it. Um, uh, now, in Cranmer's text, and all the way up through the 1662 and even up through the 1928 prayer book, this was still just said by the priest at the beginning of the service, whereas now, in our prayer book, and I believe in the 1979 prayer book, it's said together. I think that's a really good evolution of it. Um, it's, it's not one of those things. It's hard to say, and it really expresses our need in this. That is followed by the summary of the law. Um, now, uh, this, this is the beginning of one of the cycles of themes of uh, sin, grace, response, or law, gospel, response that we see over and over again throughout the liturgy. I'm not going to mark all of those during our time together this morning, uh, but, but you see each of those, sometimes not always in this exact order, but throughout the course of the liturgy. Um, uh, but this... Uh, the law is summarized using Jesus' own summary of the gospel, as we see in the Gospels. Uh, alternately, uh, the original prayer books, the Cranmer prayer books and the Elizabethan prayer book, uh, have the actual Decalogue, the Ten Commandments here. So instead of summarizing the law, you are getting it. <laughs> And, uh, and so basic, basically, uh, each of the commandments are read, and you respond with, Lord, have mercy upon us, and incline our hearts to keep this law after each one of those. Um, it's not brief, but it's effective. Um, uh, but for the sake of time, we and many other churches over the last few centuries have taken Jesus' summary of, of the law as adequately convicting here. Um, then we move on from that. Since we have now been convicted of our sin, 
we say uh, the, the Kyrie, or Kyrie eleison, um, which is Greek for Lord have mercy. It's something that also appears in some of the oldest liturgies in existence. And, uh, you know, we confess we need the Lord's mercy. Uh, uh, initially used in ancient liturgies during the litany of intercessions, what we would call prayers of the people, later, here it appears as a response uh, being given to, to this need for mercy we see from having the law just been presented to us. Alternately, there's another ancient uh, originally Greek language uh, prayer of Byzantine origin called the Trisagion, the thrice holy, which can be said in the same place and carries pretty much the same meaning. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. So either way, we are begging for the Lord's mercy having, having received the law. Then we come around and because we have been forgiven, because we have received mercy, we say the glory in excelsis. Uh, this uh, uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, begins with the, um, oh yeah, uh, Luke's account of the angels' proclamation to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest. Now, uh, this is one of the pieces of the liturgy. Now, truly, the whole liturgy can be sung or chanted or whatever. Some churches do that. This is one particular piece that gets set to music a lot. There are centuries of music set to this. Um, uh, but also, and, and again, the Gloria is one of the more ancient parts of the liturgy. It's a fifth century hymn. So notice, a lot of the stuff we're talking about so far comes from the second, third, and fourth centuries, uh, some of the oldest liturgies of the church. Now, the interesting thing about the, the Gloria, and we don't do this here, but a lot of churches do, like the Alleluias, they will strike the Gloria out of the liturgy for the period of Lent, and they'll often also leave it out of the Advent liturgies. And there's a note about that in the prayer book, uh, uh, but you don't have to do that. Uh, and it makes for a great end to our, to that particular cycle of, of law gospel response, because it's a great response. Um, after that, we move on to the collect of the day. Now, Can I ask a sure. I, I 
don't want to interrupt your flow, so if it's too long. Just no, go ahead. Um, I don't know if there's been, or if you've read any discussion about it, but um, I was Lutheran for a while, and the Lutheran service, they put the confession and absolution before all this. Yeah, and, and that's, that's something you can do. Uh, one thing that um, I'll actually talk about, um, there's, there's the possibility liturgically of doing that. There's not a note in this prayer book about doing that, but it is something that, that can be done right in, right there. Um, uh, typically after, after the summary of the law or the Decalogue or whatever. Hey, it's a great time to to uh, confess our sins right there. So that is a permissible uh, change you can make to the liturgy is, is to move it from uh, after the prayers of the people to, to there. I don't know if, not quite sure of the logic behind this, whether it's getting it as close to communion as possible. That way, if you haven't sinned within the last 25 minutes, you're okay. <laughs> um, or, or not. But, but you can, it, it is permissible to do it there, or uh, obviously in the liturgy as it's set forth to us, it's right after the prayers of the people. Well, uh, I guess, the, no, this may not have much to it, but the uh, argument that I had heard was, well, when, when you first approach God, your very first thought should be you're unworthy. Yeah, which, which is true. Of course, we still express that through the collect of purity, through the summary of the law and the curie. So, so it's, it's definitely there. We just haven't done it in the particular way that the, that the confession and absolution do it yet. Uh, but I've noticed uh, you know, going to Catholic services, they tend to have it earlier as well in the service. So not 100% not sure uh, why it's where it is in our particular liturgy, but it basically does the same thing. And there's that constant cycle uh, of the, the law, our sin being proclaimed, and us receiving mercy. So, uh, the collect of the day, and these can be found towards the back of your prayer book. There's a different one for each Sunday. Also, for particular feast days, there is a special collect. This collect, if you're doing morning and evening prayer, will be true of all the days in the week following it as well. So when you're doing morning and evening prayer, you'll use typically the collect from the previous Sunday. Occasionally you'll have something like Ash Wednesday come up and you'll change over to the Ash Wednesday collect on the days after that. But this is where we say it in our liturgy. It's, uh, a collect is simply a collective prayer. Collect is the noun form of collect, uh, which is a verb. So that's your English lesson for the day. Um, 
and it transitions us from the more preparatory material to the liturgy of the word proper and focuses our hearts and minds for the word's proclamation. Uh, and again, this changes each Sunday and holy day of the church year, usually in line with that day's theme. Then we come to the lessons. Uh, as as is said in the 39 articles, the Bible is the word of God written and thus contains all things necessary for salvation. Selections from the Old Testament or very spare uh, in, in our particular lectionary, the, uh, the Apocrypha, along with Psalms, Epistles, and Gospels are read aloud typically in that order. Now, these are appointed by the Sunday and Holy Day lectionary in the back of your prayer book. This is a three-year lectionary. For many centuries, the lectionary was one year, but, uh, but during the mid-20th century, a three-year lectionary was formed by several denominations. Uh, called the Revised Common Lectionary. Ours is based on, but great, but also adapted in certain ways from that. Our readings tend to be slightly longer and cover some areas that had been conveniently left out of the Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, some, some that... Uh, I guess are a bit more PG. <laughs> um, now, it's common for either the Old Testament or epistle to be read uh, instead of doing both of those. It gets very long if you do all of these readings, the, the Old Testament, the epistle or New Testament reading, the psalm, and the gospel, that's, that's a huge chunk of Bible. Now, I like a huge chunk of Bible, and my, my ordination services, uh, uh, we, we did all of them. It was, it was great, but it does lengthen the service a bit. Um, and so usually you're down to one of those. Uh, many churches, you will have the psalm in there that's... Uh, a little bit less common to drop, but you can, as as we do, also substitute in a hymn at that point in the middle of the readings. Um, after the readings, after the gospel readings specifically, you have the sermon. The sermon is not optional. In in the medieval Catholic Church, you did not have to have a sermon. You often did not have a sermon. And so that was something that Cranmer made mandatory, uh, uh, really drawing on uh, the epistle to Timothy, Second, Second Timothy, uh, you know, preach the word in season and out of season. Uh, Cranmer's 
Cranmer believed that for Anglicans, well, for the church, reading and preaching the word stands together. After the sermon, we then respond. We respond to the word having been read and having been preached by saying our confession. Uh, we normally say the Nicene Creed. Uh, uh, now, historically, uh, in Cranmer's prayer books and in the Elizabethan prayer book, the creed would be said after the gospel and before the sermon, but in both cases, it's a direct response to the word of God. And I've seen churches do it that way and the way that we do it both. And you know, it's powerful either way. Uh, it affirms the faith in response to the gospel's proclamation in both reading and preaching. The origin of this creed dates from the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD to refute the Arian heresy that denied the full divinity of Christ. It was expanded at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Uh, now, as is normative in the West, and if you've looked at the right in our prayer book, you'll see that there are brackets around a certain portion of this creed. Uh, as is normative in the West after the 11th century, the filioque clause the, and the sun part is included regarding the procession of the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed uh, can be omitted when the congregation uh, baptism candidates and their parents or sponsors have already affirmed the faith in the Apostles' Creed during a baptism service. So if you'll notice, during our baptism services, we skip this part because we already have corporately reaffirmed our faith by saying the Apostles' Creed responsibly. Uh, then, uh, um, there's also another creed that we can say. I don't think we've used it here at Grace in my memory, but, but some churches use it on Trinity Sunday. Uh, others, though I have not experienced this, uh, will use it on other red letter days or major feast days in the calendar. My thoughts, although it's very theologically rich, I'm very happy that the Athanasian Creed exists. Uh, uh, it's great, you know, discussing Christology and everything. It's very long, and as far as reading it aloud, it really lacks cadence. You really can't tap your feet to it. Uh, you know, the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, great. But this one, uh, it's, it's a bit of a trudge. Jacob, is it in our prayer book? It is in our prayer book. The Athanasian Creed is towards the back of our prayer book. I believe that is 
on page 769. Yes. Um, and so if you want to look at it, it's, it's there. If, uh, if in your private devotions you want to recite it, especially on you know, particular days of the year, it's, it's great. It's very thoughtful. It's been around for centuries for a reason. Uh, so, so that's one of the things that can be substituted in. So I get the, uh, I get the argument that the Athanasian Creed is just so long that using it very often can be very cumbersome. Yeah. I'm a little, well, here again, just other background. Um, it's surprising to me, it was surprising to me that we didn't use the Apostles' Creed more. Um, yeah. Because I was used to a kind of scenario where it was alternated pretty much every week between the all between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene, Creed, and Nicene Creed, yeah. We do, here, here's the thing about the way the, the prayer book is designed. It's almost counting on you in some senses doing the daily office. Now, that's, that's a pretty... Uh, uh, high expectation, I think, that, that people are going to do the daily office. But as the Apostles' Creed is the default creed of the daily office, and so you should be saying that in theory every day. And because it's tied to our baptism, yeah, it's seen as the more you know, individual person, uh, Creed, then, then corporately on the Sunday we're going to say the Nicene Creed together normally. Uh, so, so that's a little bit of the thought behind that. I'm not opposed at all to saying the the uh, Apostles' Creed on Sunday, but it's it's the Apostles' Creed is put in the daily office as sort of the balance to saying the uh, Nicene Creed on Sundays. Um, and then, uh, so after, after the creed, then we move on to an area of prayer, which begins with the prayers of the people. For, so these are, you know, praying for, as Cranmer called it, praying for the whole state of Christ's church. The Anglican Standard Text actually is pretty much a direct uh, adaptation, modernization of his language there, but it makes it a little bit more participatory by breaking it up with a response. You know, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, uh, which Cranmer's text did not do, so it was just the priest or other celebrant saying it all the way through. Um, or reader, or whatever. Um, the renewed ancient text in here, this is one of the first places where it diverges just a little bit. It says the same things, but in more concise language. Uh, so it ends up being shorter, faster, and more modern in its sound. Uh, however, it is longer in one sense, it has a significant addition 
in that version by adding a prayer for the persecuted church. I guess, surprisingly, it was not something that they were thinking of during the Reformation. Um, but uh, there, there was lots of persecution going both ways. But, uh, but that is something that we've added. There's, there are elements of that right that make the worldwide church a little bit more in, in our thoughts. Um, but that's, I mean, we are more conscious of, more conscious of the uh, world and missions as a whole now, I believe. Uh, so from that, we do finally get to uh, our next prayer, the confession and the absolution of sin. This is another instance of the sin, grace, response, or law, gospel response occurring. Uh, in the Anglican Standard Text, it's adapted very faithfully from the 1662 prayer book. Uh, like much of the liturgy, the, uh, the renewed ancient text version is adapted into modern language from ancient sources in dialogue with the Anglican tradition, but it's very much saying the same thing. And since we have confessed our sin, since we have received the Lord's absolution, then the comfortable words are proclaimed to us. Those four sentences of scripture that we that we hear every Sunday. Uh, Cranmer appointed those as a summary of the good news of the gospel. They are comforting to the soul and assure the forgiveness proclaimed immediately prior to us. And because, as Nick says, uh, uh, because we now have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. The peace has only been part of the Anglican liturgy, uh, at least in America, since the 1979 prayer book. The old, old prayer books don't have it. The 28 prayer book does not have it. Um, but the peace maintains the scriptural basis of the whole liturgy being based on Paul's commendation to greet each other with a holy kiss. Please don't kiss me. Um, <laughs> and reminding us of Jesus' words at the Last Supper, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Um, now, we move on from there after the peace to, to the second half of the service, the liturgy of the table. We've encountered Jesus through the word. Now we encounter him through the breaking of bread. More notable differences exist between the two versions of the rite in this section. Again, as we've discussed before, the Anglican standard text 
is closer to the wording of the 1662 prayer book and the Scottish Episcopal prayer book that formed the backbone of the original American liturgies. The renewed ancient text maintains continuity with the Anglican tradition by emulating what Cranmer did with the Sarum text uh, by adapting an even older Eucharistic liturgy dating from the third or fourth century, uh, typically attributed to St. Hippolytus of Rome. So, so the renewed ancient text, what it's referring to is renewed ancient. This is, this is adapted, but again, put in more Anglican emphases uh, you know, a very old text, a third or fourth century text. So, uh, the overall order, um, oh, yeah, it's rendered in mon more modern and concise language. However, the presentation of the gospel is just as clear. Now, the overall order between the two rites is still the same, so we're going to keep walking through that. Oh, my goodness, we are. I may have to continue this next time after a certain point. There's the offertory, which uh, the entire liturgy may be seen as an offering of worship to God. Uh, its words even specify this. The rite typically begins with an offertory sentence from Scripture. Um, uh, we don't always do that part, but then as the ushers collect the money offering from the congregation, a psalm or hymn is sung and the ministers prepare the elements on the table for consecration. As those offerings are presented, an adaptation of 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 14 remind us that all we offer comes from God. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. We move from that into another ancient part of the liturgy, the Sursum Corda. Uh, uh, Sursum Corda means lift up your hearts. It dates back to at least the third century, if not before. With its preface, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, so that we say that all the time, dating from at least the beginning of the second century. So we're talking by 100 AD, that call and response exists in the church. It exhorts us to preparatory, uh, participatory worship and focuses on praise. We move from that to the sanctus. The sanctus, uh, meaning holy, is repeated three times uh, and calls to mind the praise Isaiah witnessed in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. We proclaim, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Wherein people, uh, a lot of people will traditionally bow during that, then stand straight. We echo the crowds welcoming Jesus as king into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, like the glory in Excelsis, uh, there have been many musical settings created for this over time. Uh, then we move to the actual prayer of consecration. 
after, after a brief preface, I didn't uh, say, say the preface here, but a preface changes not necessarily week by week, but season by season, and on special occasions, there are specific prefaces as we enter the prayer of consecration. Both texts of the prayer of consecration, uh, well, actually leading up to the sanctus. Um, both texts of the prayer of consecration are extended prayers to God. There are three key moments which occur in a different order between the two. One is the anamnesis, which recounts the mighty acts of God. Another is the epiclesis, which invokes the Spirit's presence. Finally, there are the words of institution, which recount Christ's words in the Last Supper, particularly as they recounted in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the words of institution are identical between both. As we see from our service, the anamnesis in the Anglican Standard Text focuses on Jesus' full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, echoing the words of the Scottish Episcopal tradition. In the epiclesis, which immediately precedes the words of institution, uh, it, it asks the Father to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine, that we, receiving them according to your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Now, in the renewed ancient text, and you'll recognize some of this if you've ever been to write to Episcopal service, uh, in the renewed ancient text, the anamnesis recalls the Father's action, who made us for yourself, and who, when we have sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, sent his only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. It reminds us that he stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself once for all and thereby broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. I always think that part is so metal. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer, which appeared twice in Cranmer's Eucharist service, it actually began the service and appeared here, um, all the way through the 1662 prayer book, follows the prayer of consecration. We are offered two versions, one traditional language based on the Matthew version and one modern language version based on Luke. I have never really been in a service where the modern language version has been used. Uh, but apparently it is. Again, I don't think it's got good cadence. Mm. So, English major. Um, the, then that's followed by the fraction. This is relatively new to the service as far as our tradition goes, uh, but it's in keeping with other ecumenical practices. Here is where the bread is broken. We are reminded that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us once for all upon the cross. 
Now, here at Grace and in our diocese as a whole, there are actually two options of what to say there, and ours sort of blends the two together. If you've got a prayer book, you can see the two options, and uh, Bishop Steve has sort of woven those two phrases together. We finally come to the prayer of humble access, which is directly from Cranmer. Uh, it has become one of the most famous prayers in the English language. He considered it necessary since the old custom was for people to receive communion infrequently because they feared condemnation for being unworthy to receive it. We must be reminded and therefore confess that we do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. This prayer was left out of the right to service in 1979. Um, and, and even in the ancient renewed text of our prayer book, it exists. So that's one of the improvements even of that more modern right in our prayer book. We follow this by the Anus Dei, uh, which means the Lamb of God. It's a fourth century, again, very early hymn that recalls uh, John 119, reminding us of Christ's sacrifice as we prepare to take communion. As with the Gloria in Excelsis and Sanctus, it's often sung to a variety of settings that have been composed over the centuries. So in some churches, you'll see that. Other churches, you'll speak it, uh, like us. Um, there we go. Then we finally come to the ministration of communion. Uh, uh, one of two invitations is said we typically say the gifts of God for the people of God take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving you can look at all my notes here later uh, the elements are then presented to each congregant uh, there are several things you can speak while doing this uh, uh, the original text that is in the 1662 prayer book is really long. Uh, and so here at Grace, we typically say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Conveys the message quite well. After we take communion, we say the post-communion prayer, uh, which, is a mildly, uh, which is very mildly updated in the renewed ancient text. And... Uh, 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 sorry, in the Anglican Standard Text. Um, and it's pretty much directly adapted. In the Renewed Ancient Text, it's, it's a little bit more adapted, but keeps the same meaning. Cranmer felt it was important to have a prayer of thanksgiving. It not only thanks God for the gift of Christ that we receive through taking communion, uh, but also the communion... Uh, with all who are members of his mystical body. And we ask for his grace to continue in that holy fellowship and do all the good works that you've prepared for us to walk in. Finally, we have the blessing, which uh, typically combat the standard blessing is a combination of Philippians 4, 7 and Numbers 6, 24 through 28 plus an invocation of the Trinity. 
Finally, at the back of the room, what Michael or I always say uh, is the dismissal. This, a deacon always says this, or a priest who is also a deacon, uh, uh, as, as an invitation to go out into the world, being the church to the world. Um, the dismissal, uh, though it's new as of the 79 edition, appears in the earliest recorded Christian services. Uh, four options exist with two alleluias added for most seasons, except for Lent and other penitential occasions. Three alleluias are added from Easter until Pentecost. And by a mistake that we've just loved and kept, uh, we say three alleluias most of the year here at Grace. Uh, uh, and Hey, why not another Alleluia? Well, you can do it. Uh, right now, it's like saying Macbeth in a theater. Um, so, uh, f final notes. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with this. You can look at the slides later. There's actually an option for ordering the service along the 1662 lines. That's, uh, that's an option that's put forth in the prayer book. The one thing that it has that our normal service does not have is the exhortation, which, uh, which is right down here. It base, basically tells people, hey, before you take communion, you should examine yourself to make sure that you are actually repentant of all your sins and at peace with God, picking up on uh, 1 Corinthians' own at admonition in that regard. Uh, that's directly from Cranmer, and it's, it's the one thing that's typically included there that's not typically included in our modern order, though you can include it. Uh, there's, there's a possible way of working it in, and some churches do on certain days, like the beginning of Lent and the beginning of Advent. Uh, anyhow, uh, if you've got any questions, just ask uh, me. Otherwise, uh, next week we will talk about the daily office. <laughs> You're welcome.